Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. We just finished a section from 13 to 23 that has been fulfilled, and starting with 24 is yet now future. Uh, We will go through all this verse by verse on Wednesday evening, along with 25, 26, and maybe 27. This morning, though, verses 1, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty, he makes it waste, distorts its surface, scatters abroad its inhabitants. Now verse 17, Fear in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit, and he who comes up from the midst out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are opened, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth will reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgressors shall be heavy, transgressions shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and will not rise again. It will come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. And after many days, then they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. We just did, as we're making our way through, like I said earlier, a section of the book of Isaiah, chapter 13 through 23, is a section of prophecy that dealt with 11 different nations, and it was all foretold, for example, the one with Babylon. Isaiah told exactly what was going to happen 200 years before it happened. So we have 11 different nations from chapter 13 to 23, including Jerusalem, And we've just finished that section. As I stand before you this morning, we went through it. Incredible detail on how this would happen and how it would be done. We look back on it. It's exactly the way the Lord said. Another good example would be the destruction of Tyre. How it would fall. The Lord said not just nation, but nations plural. And that's exactly how it fell. Babylon came against it, first of all. And then later... Alexander the Great came, and in great detail described exactly how the city of Tyre would fall. Past that, the reason I even bring it up this morning is because we're going to be studying things. When you read a scripture that says this earth is going to fall and not rise again, you go, whoa, that's pretty heavy. And to give it credence, to give it a certainty that there's nothing that's going to stop this from happening, we simply look back and see, has God judged before? And was he correct in prophesying it and telling it before it happened? Well, that's one of the benefits of verse-by-verse and chapter-by-chapter study, because now we're changing. So if everything that happened from 13 to 23 happened exactly as it said it would, then we can have every confidence that what we're reading here in chapter 24, even though it's yet future, it will certainly take place. 
Now, we call it the tribulation, but the Bible has 12, 13 different names for the tribulation period. Isaiah 2 calls it the day of the Lord. Isaiah 34, the day of God's vengeance. Jeremiah 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel 9, the 70th week. Daniel 12, the time of the end. Revelation 6, the great day of his wrath. Um, Some versions say the wrath of the lamb is a better translation there. Uh, Revelation 14, the hour of his judgment. Matthew 13, the end of this world. Isaiah 26, the indignation. Uh, Daniel 9, the overspreading of abominations. Uh, In Daniel 12, the time of trouble such that has never been. And then in Matthew 24, the Lord talks about the great, then there will be great tribulation, nothing like it before, nothing like it's ever going to happen again. And then he, to show the intensity of what's happening, he says, unless he directly intervenes with world history and returns, everybody will die. So there's never been a time, this is a good time to bring up those who try to put all the Bible prophecy being fulfilled in 70 AD. Uh, you, just, you just can't have it because there's been a lot of things that happened a lot worse than 70 AD. Jesus said, um, unless he directly intervenes and shortens the time frame, all flesh would be destroyed. This morning, what I'd like to do is look at six reasons why this has to happen why there has to be this period of time. So in beginning, the first one that I like to look at, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 13. Matthew 13, the first one we'll look at, is to harvest the crop that has been sown throughout the ages by God, Satan, and mankind in general. So let's turn to the parable of the wheat and the tares, It's divided up into two sections. Often the Lord would lay out the parable and then he would explain what he just said uh, to his disciples. So let's pick it up in verse 24, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How come then it has tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. Until the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them and bundle them to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, when this is going to be fulfilled will be during the tribulation time. If you go now to verse 37... When Jesus sent the multitudes away and his disciples came 
him. They said, Lord, what did you just say? Would you explain it to us? So in verse 37, he's talking not to the multitudes anymore. He's talking to the disciples. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. Clear enough. The Lord came to preach good news, to explain the gospel. The field is the world, and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Now, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all that offends, all those who practice lawlessness, and cast them into a furnace of fire that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sons of the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, you remember back in Isaiah, he says he's going to gather the kings, and it says, and then they will be punished, but only after a period of time. So what you have is the end of the age coming, and we, we enter into, after the tribulation, the kingdom age, a thousand years. But after that, we have this resurrection after many days. And that's when we have the great white throne judgment. So, reason number one. Why does there have to be a tribulation? Well, the answer is that all the seeds that have been sown by the enemy, all the false doctrine, all the cults, the different false religions, all stacked up against the... When Jesus said, the way is narrow, few, be, few there will be that find it, but way is broad that leads to destruction and many will find that. So what's been going on over history is the sowing of these seeds, developing doctrines and people's different belief systems. That's all going to be brought into account. Number two, to prove the falseness of the devil's claim, and that is And for this one, I'm going to have you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. To prove the falseness of the devil's claim. Satan has a tempting to uh, convince a skeptical universe that he, rather than Jesus, is a logical and rightful ruler of creation. Therefore, during the tribulation, the sovereign God will give him a free and unhindered hand to make good his boast. Needless to say, Satan is going to fail miserably at this. But let me me just walk you through it. First of all, it's true that right now the God of this world is Lucifer. And we know that because if you go to Luke chapter 4 and um, draw your attention to verse 5 and 6, This is right after the Lord was um, baptized. Uh, He was led into the wilderness, and and then, as you know, for those 40 days and 40 nights, uh, he was tested and tempted. So we read in verse 5, it says, Then the devil uh, took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in just a moment's time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. 
All you have to do, Jesus, is get down and worship me, and it's all yours. What the Lord said is, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you will worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Good place for it, amen. Amen, him only. But the Lord did not dispute his claim. And as I speak to you now, he's still the God of this world. When Jesus Christ died on a cross, he made it possible for our redemption. But at the same time, he has authority now to reclaim that which he created. By him, all things were created, whether in heaven, whether in earth, whether visible or invisible, doesn't matter. All things were created by him and they were created for him. Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, chapter five, Satan's claim that this is his world, well, his claim is true. But what happens in Revelation five, is we have a picture of the father on the throne and he has a scroll. And it's gotta be quite a scroll because nobody can even look at this thing. And um, you know, the angel's talking with John and it says nobody was worthy to take the scroll. They couldn't even look at it. And then John just loses it. He just breaks down. The thought of this world going on under the rulership of the devil was more than he could handle. And so he began to weep. And the angel says, don't weep, John, fear not. Behold, the, the lion of the tribe of David has prevailed to take the scroll. What a moment that has to be. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. He walks up to the father, takes that scroll, and you say, well, what is it? Well, it's going to be opening the, the tribulation period, seven scrolls, seven, uh, seven seals, and he's going to unfold them. What does he have? He has the title deed back. He says, I'll take that. I bought it. And I bought it with my own blood. It's mine. And now I'm going to bring forth the unveiling of the tribulation period. And it begins, as we'll see in Second Thessalonians in just a bit, the first scroll being opened. The very first thing you see is the Antichrist arriving on the scene. So number two, why there has to be a tribulation is to prove the falseness that, that the devil is not going to have his way. He'll try. And he will be successful to an extent by trying to kill a majority of the Jewish people during this time. But he will not be successful. All right, reason number three. To prepare a great multitude for heaven. For this one, we need to turn to Revelation chapter seven. And we'll pick it up in verse nine. Chapter six, of course, is the opening of the first Six seals. And again, let me draw your attention to chapter six. Here's one of the names of the, of the tribulation. In verse 17, it says, For the great day of his wrath has come, who is able to stand? So here we're told this is it, in the very first um, opening of the seals. Now, in verse nine, we read, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed with white robes and and palm branches in their hand. 
and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, well, who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? So the angel is talking to John, and John said to him, Sir, you know, because I don't, where did they come from? So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple, and he who sits on the throne is going to dwell among them, they shall hunger no more. Not took on a whole new meaning for me in the last couple of days. Because when I talked to Bastia on the phone and he told me, um, people are starving. It's just it. And um, that's what happens when it doesn't rain and you're in the central part of Haiti. And so one of the things that Jesus talked about, Matthew 24, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, but it also says what? Famines. And so clearly foretold. Well, those days are going to come to an end someday. They will hunger no more. Thirst no more. The sun and the moon will strike them, nor any heat. Why? For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne, he will shepherd them and lead them to livings of fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So reason number three why there has to be a tribulation is to prepare this great multitude of martyrs uh, that will be in heaven. All right, reason number four for the tribulation, to prepare a great living multitude for the millennium. For this one, we need to turn to Matthew chapter 25, so please make your way back there. Pick it up in verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. See, during the tribulation, people are forced to do one of two things. And um, Mary's going to be doing an update uh, shortly on just how quickly the cashless society is coming into being and how the stage is being set primarily through Rome and the Pope. We'll have that as part of our prophecy conference this year. Uh, How quickly um, ecumenicalism is moving back towards Rome, which eventually will be the seat for the one world religion. We also know that it has to be a one world government and a one um, source monetary system. So... In order to survive during the tribulation period, you've got to make a decision. You either take the mark of the beast, and you can survive and you'll live, or you don't uh, because of the warning of the angels, and it'll cost you your life. So it's decision time. And um, I, I sort of look at the tribulation as forcing people to choose. Um, I, how many times have you talked to people and you're talking to them, and you're witnessing to them, and they go, 
yeah, maybe someday I'll become a Christian. Maybe, maybe someday I'll do that. Well, during the tribulation, you're not going to have that opportunity. It's sink or swim. You take the mark or you don't. So I see it as a way of the Lord putting the seven-year period together where you are forced to make a decision. You're either for me or against me. There's no, well, maybe someday I will, maybe someday I won't. In other words, dragging your feet. And by the way, when you do that, you're saying no. Because uh, the, the Lord doesn't give you the option. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no in-between. You either are going to believe it and accept it because it forces you to. It's making a declaration. And the one who's declaring it is the Lord himself. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. And if you don't repent, you will perish, period. And so you can play the, I'll think about it someday, but know this, you're saying no. And when you hear the gospel and openly reject it, the Bible calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only sin that cannot be forgiven. And so the reason for the tribulation You have to choose now. So when we get to this verse right here, immediately after those days, what days? Well, the time of the great tribulation, we have this 45-day period of time where the Lord is going to separate the sheep from the goats, those who um, received the mark and those who did not. They're still alive after this great period of time. Many are dead. Most of the world's population is gone. But in verse uh, 32, he will gather the nations before him. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That seven year period of time is over. People are still alive. And... um, The ones who remain faithful enter in, but the ones who did not, we read that uh, their their punishment, verse 41, he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the reason for the tribulation, well, it's gonna make you choose. Those who are indifferent now, when when the rapture takes place, I imagine common sense and logic tells me those crazy Christians were right about that thing. And all of a sudden, they, <laughs> you have their attention. Um, Second Thessalonians say the devil will be able to explain a lot of it away. But not if you had those pesky relatives that are always telling you about Jesus' coming and the, and the rapture. That's, that's going to happen. And the devil will have his own explanation, but people will be wise enough to know what, what really happened. All right, number five. Why there has to be the tri- great tribulation. And that is to deal with Israel to get them to a place where they finally accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. John 1.11 says that Jesus came unto his own. When it says that, it means the Jewish people. And his own received him not. I mean, they've been talking and praying for him for, you know, how long? And then he shows up, and uh, they did not receive him. So the tribulation is actually going to force 
the nation of Israel to make some decisions. To follow up on this one, I need you to turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is really closer towards the end of the Old Testament. I'll give you a chance to get there. Zechariah. I want to go to 13 first, and then I'll back step just a little bit. In the tribulation, in verse... Eight and nine. He's talking about the Jewish people during the, the tribulation when the Antichrist actually comes after them. Remember in Revelation 12, it says the devil was cast out of heaven with great anger. And he knows he's just got a little bit of time. And then it says he went to make war with the woman. And that would be Israel. So when he is let loose, his primary focus and his um, tactic is to try to stop Israel from calling upon the Lord. And he's successful by two-thirds. So let's pick it up in verse 9. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die. Who? This is, this is a hard Bible study for me to give when I have unsaved Jewish guides. Because they look at me like, what did you say? (laughs) And uh, hard to hear, hard to talk about. But the scriptures are clear that when the devil is cast out, he goes to make war with Israel and two thirds will be cut off and die. But one third shall be left in it and I will bring them one third through the fire, why? I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. He's putting the pressure on. And then they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. One of the reasons there has to be a tribulation is to put pressure on the nation of Israel to break them, if you will, to test them so that they finally cry out on the name of the Lord. Matter of fact, the last thing Jesus said to the nation of Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, when and where do they do that? Um, uh, And that would be a study that we did a couple weeks ago in chapters 16. And... um, the place of Petra, where they flee and they're supernaturally protected for that three and a half year period of of time. But let's see if we can make it a little bit more personal here. Go back to chapter 12. And I, I imagine it'd have to be Jewish to get the emotion that's going on here. Imagine waiting for something your whole life. I watched the the zeal Uh, And Paul talks about it. It says the Jewish people have a zeal for righteousness, but not according to knowledge, not according to the scriptures. And you go to the Wailing Wall, and you watch these guys. I mean, they are into it. And then off to the side room, they have their prayer books, and they, I mean, this is what they do. And so they have this zeal. Imagine after hearing and blowing off the gospel, and I might say they have some good reasons for it, um, 
things that have been done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Jewish people over the centuries. Uh, They have every reason to be hard-hearted. But the Lord has softened the hearts of some. But imagine the day when it actually happens. We have it recorded for us in chapter 12, verse 10. When they do call upon the Lord, and I'll show you that in Hosea in just a bit, but here's the emotional part of what they're going through. He says, I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for a firstborn child. And that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hamad Riman in the plain of Megiddo. And everybody's gonna wanna be alone. They won't wanna be with their wife or their kids. And... Um, the emotional reality. They look on him whom they have pierced. Um, if you go back to chapter 13 and go back to verse 7, again, conversation going on, the Jewish people to the Lord, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, and I will turn my hand against them. And, um, whoops, that's not the verse I was looking for. I'm sorry, verse six. And someone will say to him, what are these wounds that you have in your hands? And then he will answer, well, these are the wounds which I was wounded with in the house of my friends. And we're talking, we're going back to the cross, of course, and those that looked upon him. And, uh, some of them, of course, being Jewish people. So, number five, why does it have to be the tribulation? It's a mechanism that God uses to get the people to finally say this. And when I say this, you need to go to Hosea chapter six, which is a little couple chapters back to your left, page 889, if you have the authorized version of the Bible, the correct and only good one. 889, and let's look at the last verse of chapter five. I like to go here often because it explains God's plan for Israel. It breaks my heart when I hear people believing in replacement theology that God has done with the Jewish people. I'll tell you something that blew my mind this week. I heard certain Calvary chapels are getting involved with replacement theology. And the person I was talking to said, I don't, I don't believe it. And then I was talking to my buddy Chris in Southern California, and he says, Dwight, it's true. I said, what, Calvary chapels? And I, just, I can't wrap my head around it, uh, which if you're not familiar with the term that God is through with Israel and all the promises given to Israel are just, are just for the church, not Israel. Well, no, the whole purpose of the tribulation is to get them to come to Jesus Christ. So in the last verse of chapter five, the Lord is talking to Israel. He says, I'm going to return again to my place, that's heaven, until they acknowledge their offense. Notice it doesn't say offenses, it's singular, not plural, not sins, but one sin. Then they will seek my face 
when in their affliction they will diligently seek me. That's what the tribulation is. A time uh, like none other. And it is here, one of the titles for the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. See, it's Jewish. Now, chapter six, the first two verses. Then they will say, this is this remnant, this one third at Petra. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn, he'll heal up. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. When? After two days, he will revive us. Now we gotta bring in that scripture from Peter. One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. How long has the Lord been gone for? A couple days, 2,000 years. This is gonna happen, it's been 2,000 years. So we're supposed to know the times and the seasons like verses like this. On the third day, well now we're talking going into millennium, another uh, thousand years, he will raise us up and then we'll live in his sight. But they won't do this until after the two days. So, reason number five, there has to be the tribulation, is so that the remnant, the one third that's left, will answer what the Lord says, you won't see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And basically, Lord, help. We're calling out upon you. What does he do? He shows up. The last one, number six, to punish the Gentiles. This world is so ripe for judgment. Every day we hear some crazy thing going on, some mass shooting somewhere, our laws going down the tubes. And you don't need me to tell you, we all know how bad it is out there. We are so ripe for judgment on this earth. And God has judged in the past. And in the New Testament says some some are willfully ignorant that God did judge the whole world at one time. And he only saved eight people. And um, the Lord is righteous. I think we're long overdue. And I think he's just being long-suffering and patient so that others will, will come to know him. And so he will do so because Isaiah chapter 24 says so. There's going to be a tribulation. Why do you say that, Dwight? Because Isaiah chapter 24 says there's going to be one. And it's going to be the worst period of time that the world has ever known. It begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. How do we know that? And how long of a period of time is it? I won't have you turn there, but Daniel 9 verse 27 says this. He, the Antichrist, will confirm the covenant with many for one week, or a seven-year period of time. And then in the middle of the week, he will cause a sacrifice and oblation to cease, And for the overspreading of abominations, he will make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. When you get to Revelation 6.1, the first person on the white horse is the Antichrist. He has made a peace arrangement, and the world is looking for anybody, certainly not Obama, he's not gonna do it, for any man who can bring some sort of order to a war that's completely not winnable or fightable because uh, it's so covert 
Anybody at any time can, some guys in Milwaukee, they called me before it happened. Uh, how, how do you fight against that when you're totally unprepared for it? So our world is looking for answers. Who's the man that can do it? Who's the man with the plan? Well, if you ask anybody in Israel, it's the one who gives them authority to rebuild their temple again. And that will be a part of this peace agreement. And then he'll make it for seven years. But Daniel 9 says in the middle of that time, he's going to break it off. And that's exactly when the devil's cast out of heaven and goes to make war with Israel. So it all, it all connects and the dots are all there. The church was a little confused about this, especially the church of Thessalonica. So I'm going to have you turn to Second Thessalonians. People who hear studies like this for the first time, you go, whoa, that's a lot to take in. And the fact of the matter, it's true. You know how we learn these things? This is what J. Vernon McGee would say. Repetition, 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 repetition. You just go over it again and again. Paul says, I'm not writing you anything new. I'm writing you about things you already know. I'm just reminding you to stir you up and to, um, to, to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 through 5, let me give you a little bit of the background. The reason there's first and second Thessalonians is because when Paul got done with first Thessalonians, the last thing he talked about in chapter five was the day of the Lord. Now between the first book and the second letter, uh, we read here that somebody was spreading false doctrine, false teaching. And so he said, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, a reference to the rapture, and are gathering together to him. He says, I don't want you to be shaken up in your mind or troubled, either by spirit or by letter, as though it was from us. This is what happened. Somebody started telling the church as they were listening to Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 5, and telling them, we're in the tribulation right now. And it really shook the young Christian up. And Paul has to... When he writes the second letter, he says, okay, let me put it in order. I don't want you to be shaken up. I don't want your mind to be troubled. I mean, the last thing we read in chapter five about the day of the Lord is God's got a plan. And the last thing it says in verse 18, I think, is therefore comfort one another. So don't be troubled. Be comforted. God has a plan. But it got out. And now Paul has to write the letter to to settle them back down. He says, here, here's the chronology. Here's the, here's the order. The letter didn't come from us. I don't know who's spreading that you're in the tribulation. You're not. As though the day of Christ had come. Now, the day of Christ is a reference to um, the tribulation. It's another, another one of the names. He says, don't let anybody deceive you by any means, for that day, uh, the great tribulation, will not come unless the falling away comes first. That could be two things. Apostasia is the word there, apostasy, or false doctrine entering the church. That's, we see that happening. But Dr. Tommy Ice says the Greek word there has a meaning of actually being caught away, or a picture of the rapture. I wouldn't be dogmatic about either one, because I have a lot of respect for Dr. Tommy Ice. 
And then the man of sin is revealed, the sudden perdition. The tribulation cannot start unless the Antichrist is on the scene. And says, so don't worry about it. He's not here. So the whole reason for the second letter is, um, and then it explains who the lawless one is, and so on and so forth. So the timing of the tribulation, seven years. Are we in it right now? Absolutely not. The Antichrist has to be on on the scene. The church has to be removed. And apostasy is certainly on the line. Just flip back to uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, and we have Paul writing to them, and the last chapter, and my subtitle under chapter 5 is the description of the day of the Lord. And this is what he has to say about it. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. When they say peace and safety, then destruction comes upon them like a woman in labor pain. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should overtake you. And so he said, I've I've told you the things that are going to happen. Signposts. The biggest signpost is the regathering of the nation of Israel. Obviously, if, if... God is going to deal with them as a nation. Obviously, they have to be regathered back in the land. Good place for an amen. They got to be there in order for that's that's fulfilled. So they're they're back in the land. So Paul's teaching on the tribulation down in verse nine. He says, "I don't want you to worry about it." He says, "For verse nine, God has not appointed us to wrath. He hasn't appointed His bride to go through this." period of time. He knows how to um, deliver the righteous. Let me say that again. God knows how to deliver the righteous. Then verse 11, therefore, because he knows how to do that, therefore, comfort one another, edify one another, love on one another, just as you're doing. Just keep doing it. But don't worry about you being in the tribulation because you're not. Now this whole idea of the righteous not being judged with the unrighteous Here's a teaching, but we have an Old Testament picture that I'd like to begin to wind things up with this morning of this truth and this spiritual principle that we find way back in the book of Genesis, a conversation, go to chapter 18 of Genesis, a conversation that Abraham had with the Lord as the Lord comes down with two angels to take out Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord is talking with Abraham. And he's him and Han and he's saying, should I hide from Abraham about what I'm about to do? And so he says, the, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so bad. We've come down. And if we don't like what we see, he's going to destroy it. Well, immediately, Abraham, realizing his nephew Lot lives in Sodom, has a concern. So he asked the appropriate question. In verse 22, as the Lord is explaining to Abraham, we're taking it out if it's as bad as they say. And that means that his nephew Lot would be taken out too. So verse 22, then the men turned away from there, the angels, and went towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham was still before with the Lord. And Abraham came near the Lord and said, would you destroy the righteous 
with the wicked. And then he goes on uh, in verse 23. Um, suppose there's 50, would you, would you spare it for the 50? And then he says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do the right thing? So it's a fair question. And uh, the Lord gives him the answer. He says, no, I will not judge a righteous person with a wicked. So now we have a problem. Lot lives there. If you turn to chapter 19, verse 22, Lot takes the angels in for the night. And um, because the men wanted to have uh, sexual relations with the angels, angels blinded them. And judgment now is imminent. But here's the problem. And the angels, as they hesitate wanting to leave their home, uh, not sure they're buying all the stuff about judgment, uh, they just said, escape. Verse 17, it'll come to pass they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life and make sure you don't look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Uh, Escape to the mountains lest you are destroyed. And they lingered. And verse 22, notice what the angel says. Please hurry, get out of here for I cannot do anything until you, you arrive there. The Lord will not judge the righteous with the unrighteous. They have to be taken out. And gang, it's the same for you and me. There has to be a rapture. Why does there have to be a rapture? There has to be a rapture because the Lord is bringing judgment. And the spiritual principle in the Old Testament picture, when asked straight out, Lord, would you do such a thing? He says, nope, I wouldn't. What about 50? Nope. How about 40? Nope. 30? You can see Abraham was a good businessman here. Made it all the way down to 10. He said, well, what about 10 people? He says, no, I wouldn't destroy it for the sake of the 10. Problem was, there wasn't 10. And Sodom and Gomorrah was judged. So what do we do in light of a study like we have this morning? Well, let's hopefully end it on a little brighter note and go back to Isaiah chapter 24 and look at verse 23. Verse 23 is after the tribulation. We have one verse. And I call this the blessed hope. The rapture, of course, is the blessed hope. Verse 23, after this period of time, then we read, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts now will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. How it all is going to end, the earth is going to get continually worse. I know you don't like to hear it. I don't like to preach it, but that's the reality of it. It says, these, Jesus said, these are the beginnings of sorrows. And it's going to get progressively, not better, it's going to get progressively worse. And then, what are we to do in light of all these things? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus said, I want you to occupy. I want you to be about your father's business. Uh, Don't just leave with uh, head knowledge of 
chronological events that are going to end up in the tribulation. Seize the moment. And um, as servants, like the parable of the ten servants that had ten, he says, I just want you to occupy so that when I return, uh, you'll have something to show for your time on this planet. The second thing is, don't look back. The Bible talks about people falling away from the faith in the last days. And remember what the angel said to Lot's family. When you're looking at this world, don't look back. When you gave your life to Jesus, you said, bye-bye, old world. And uh, you said, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. That's just the way it is. Jesus said in talking about his coming, remember Lot's wife. What happened? She looked back. Why did she look back? Because her heart really wasn't in here. It was on the things of this world. And she was turned into a, a pillar of salt, the Bible says. So number two, don't look back. Hang in there, gang. I, I pray for endurance and perseverance in these days as it's getting harder to uh, do things the right way, not to compromise, especially with doctrine. And finally, uh, what we talked about yesterday, what we literally did yesterday because of what we're going th- through in Ezekiel, and I'll close with this. Watch and pray. Keep your eyes open. Luke 21, watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape. Well, escape what? Everything that we just studied in Isaiah 24. To escape all those things that will come to pass and then to be able to stand before the Son of Man. Amen? Amen. Let's stand then, we will. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And... um, it's a lot to take in. I, I pray that as we've sowed hopefully good seed this morning through the word of God, that now your Holy Spirit, Lord, will, will develop it and help us have a better understanding and um, really have a purifying effect on what we say, what we do, how we live. And more, most importantly, to make sure that our name is, is written in the book of life. I pray for anyone this morning, uh, either here or watching online, that has not accepted you as our Lord and Savior. That is a very intimate, personal thing between you and that person. To the thief on the cross, all he could get out was, Lord, remember me. And if that's all you can get out, but you mean it from your heart and you want to be saved, Lord, I pray that you would, as your word says, today if we hear your voice, not to harden our heart, but to invite you into our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.